This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. In my 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. The legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleaming with like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upwards, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still, and when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out, one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads, 
was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. God of glory and majesty, we have gathered here because our one desire is to behold you. To behold you in your beauty, to experience your presence, to be satisfied by your love. Holy Spirit, as we have heard about this vision you have inspired, this word that you have inspired, we pray that you would speak to our hearts also, that we might see by faith the face of God. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for remaining standing for that reading. We stand as a gesture of respect to the Word of God, and it was admittedly a long reading, but perhaps rather than standing, we should have been on our knees or face down, the way Ezekiel himself responded to this awesome and terrifying vision of the presence of God. Because we have to confess, all of us, that we are far too casual before the face of God, so often flippant and even blasé, all too familiar with the holiness of the one that we worship. The American writer Annie Dillard asks, does anyone have the foggiest idea of the sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill on a Sunday morning. It is madness, she writes, to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake up someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Our greatest need is for the spirit of the living God to help us to feel the weight of the divine glory, to sense the overwhelming nearness of the utterly transcendent one. To know without doubt that our creator has descended, he has condescended to be with us, his creation. To be filled with holy fear and with holy love. We're meditating this afternoon on this vision of the prophet Ezekiel. Not a book we turn to very often. Because of all the strange Prophets of the Old Testament, Ezekiel is perhaps the strangest. A man who is in the grip of what Robert Alter calls a God-intoxicated derangement. He's a man who's recorded what we could almost describe as hallucinations, these bizarre paranormal experiences, shattering visions given to him by God that overwhelm his senses so much that You can tell that Ezekiel is struggling to describe just what it is that 
he has seen and heard and felt. The date, July 31st, 593 BC. The location, by the side of a Kabar Canal in what is now Iraq, but was then the middle of the Babylonian Empire. How did God's people end up in this God-forsaken place? Israel, Judah, tiny nation, squeezed in between superpowers, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and the year 597 BC, four years before this prophecy, King Nebuchadnezzar took the elites of Israel into exile. It was a clever move to break down national resistance by taking the cultural and religious, the intelligentsia, a move that someone like Stalin would mimic centuries later, to take them out of Jerusalem and to place them deep within the Babylonian Empire. It would be hard to overestimate what a catastrophe this was for Israel and how horribly displacing this would have been for Ezekiel and those who went with them. And perhaps there are a few people here who have had to flee their own countries, Ethiopia and Iran, Jordan, Ukraine, and have been forced to go to a new place who can imagine what it was like for Ezekiel to go through this. The Jewish writer Tamara Eskenazi says that exile is not simply being homeless. Rather, it's knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. Exile. It's not being without roots. On the contrary, it's having deep roots, which have now been plucked up. And there you are with your roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to your native soil. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back. Not yet. Ezekiel is living through a terrible time of chaos, a fear of doubt, a time of deconstruction. And any faithful Jew would have had a deep crisis of faith because here is the God of Israel so closely linked to the promised land, to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the temple where God had promised to dwell. Where has God gone? Where have we ended up? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Psalm 137. How can we sing the song of the Lord? In a foreign land. It's a bit obscure in the Hebrew what the 30th year is referring to in verse 1. But if it is talking about Ezekiel's age, there's a deep pathos to it actually. Because Ezekiel is a priest. His father is a priest. He's in the priestly line. And his vocation from birth was to serve as a priest clothed in linen, offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. And according to Numbers 4, A priest entered into his ministry at the age of 30. Here Ezekiel has been in exile for four years. He's reached his 30th birthday when he should be entering into his destiny, when he should be beginning the calling to which he has been born. He's now qualified to serve, but there is no temple for him to serve in. He's been cut off. It seems like Ezekiel's story is at an end, and the story of the people of God is at an end. They have sinned. They've been judged. They've been 
seemingly abandoned. They are what Ezekiel will see in a later vision as dry bones scattered over the valley, left to whiten and to disintegrate under the sun. But Ezekiel is about to discover that it is not the end of the story and that God is not bound by the temple or anything Ezekiel has come to expect as being normal for God. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel is about to have an apocalyptic revelation where the sky is going to be torn open and he's going to be shown what reality really is. That what he thinks of as reality is in fact not what is most real. And he's going to experience to behold the awesome majesty of God that pervades all of his creation. And notice what Ezekiel is about to describe in this chapter and throughout his book is not the results of his studies, his research, his meditation, his speculation, his deductions. This is divine revelation coming to Ezekiel totally unsought and totally unexpected because the hand of the Lord was upon him. Ezekiel is a man who's been seized violently by the spirit. He's been conscripted to witness God and to record what God has to say. This is a man who has been possessed and overpowered by God. Because apart from God's initiative, apart from God disclosing himself, apart from God's voice that speaks, we would know nothing about him. He is so exalted and lifted up. His immensity fills and goes beyond space and time. This is not a God who can be analyzed and measured and inspected or managed and controlled. He is, as Walter Brueggemann describes him, wild dangerous, unfettered, and free. And in his supreme freedom, the Lord God chooses to reveal himself to Ezekiel, to the exiles by the Kabar River, and to us centuries later. Also, sinful, confused, doubting, In exile, us who more than anything else need a vision of God in his holiness, his majesty and power. We need to encounter his terrifying otherness, whatever the cost. Ezekiel's vision progresses in stages as his eyes ascend to God. The first thing he experiences is a windstorm sweeping out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light because the God that Ezekiel sees is not static chained and confined to Jerusalem or to anywhere else. This is the warrior God who is on the move. He is arriving to judge the world. Ezekiel sees in this storm, a huge ball of fire glowing like bronze, the fire, a symbol 
of the refining and purifying judgment of God, a sign of God's irresistible beauty and his destroying, consuming power. And in the center of this ball of fire are four living creatures. Each of these four creatures possesses four faces and four wings. And it's clear later in the book of Ezekiel that he's describing the cherubim, these angels who are the guardians of the holiness of God. In fact, back in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, the the inner sanctum was the ark, the throne of God. And above the ark were carved two cherubim covering God's throne with their stretched out wings. That was only a carved copy. Ezekiel is seeing the actual thing. And you can tell he's not quite sure what he's seen or how to describe it. He's talking about what it looked like. He's talking about the appearance. He uses these words throughout his vision. It's like Ezekiel saying, yeah, it was, it was like this, but not really. If anyone would try to, to sketch what he was seeing, he would be like, ah, no, that, that's not quite it. We shouldn't get misguided by a woodenly literalistic view of Ezekiel or any of the prophets. It's far too clumsy of a tool. What Ezekiel and the prophets are experiencing is the inward reality of things that's being communicated directly to the prophet's mind, which he can only express through the analogy of physical experiences. Each of these four cherubim have four faces, human on the front, a lion on the right, an ox on the left, and an eagle presumably on the back. These four creatures symbolize the pinnacle of God's creation. Man as the image of God, the lion as the greatest wild animal, the ox as the strongest domestic beast, and the eagle the highest of the winged creatures who soar over God's earth. These awesome burning cherubim represent what is highest and noblest and more exalted of all God's creation. But yet, these are still only creatures. And the gap that separates them from Ezekiel is as nothing compared to the vast gulf between them and the one whose throne they bear. And these strange angelic living creatures are speeding back and forth like flashes of lightning. They're burning like coals of fire or like torches. And as Ezekiel gazes on these four living creatures in his vision, he sees something else that Beside each of these four-faced creatures is a wheel on the ground. These wheels sparkle like topaz, and they're made really two wheels, a wheel intersecting another wheel, kind of like a gyroscope. Whatever this looked like, however it was constructed, the living creatures and the wheels are moving perfectly synced up in perfect tandem with the spirit of the living creatures. It turns out that the throne of God is highly mobile. The king of all creation is moving about freely and without hindrance. Nothing can stop him. He's not stuck in a box or in a room or in a temple or in a city. God freely chooses to be present of all places here on the banks of the Kabar Canal or wherever he chooses to be. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens You are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The God we worship is present everywhere. 
He's not like us creatures who can only be in one point of space at one point in time. God transcends all limitations of space and time because he pervasively fills all space and time and in fact exists beyond space and time. God is always and everywhere present with and to his creation, upholding all things in life. Notice one important detail in Ezekiel's vision. The wheels touch the ground. Here Ezekiel is in the profane, idolatrous land of Babylon. The reason the Jews are living beside the canal and beside the rivers is because they needed so much water for the ritual purification in this filthy place they've been exiled to. But the profane earth of Babylon is somehow made sacred by the bottom of God's throne actually touching the earth. Because God is no more confined to heaven than he is confined to Jerusalem. We can't think of God as safely blocked up up there in his space that we've set for him. God is everywhere, including on this earth. And the wheels, strangely, are full of eyes. This mechanism is sentient because God is omnipresent and omniscient. He's not only present everywhere. God sees all things. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 23? And not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Turns out that Ezekiel and the other exiles are not far from God. They're not hidden from God's sight. He is present and he sees. And then Ezekiel observes that spread out above the heads of these living creatures is this vault, sparkling like crystal. This is the firmament. This is the sky dome. And these creatures are moving, and the sound of them is like waves crashing against the shore or a waterfall thundering down into a canyon. It's like the uproar of a mighty army in battle. This whole vision is an overwhelming sensual experience to Ezekiel's eyes and his ears. He's at his creaturely limit as he raises his eyes above the sky vault to the throne of God. And Ezekiel hears God before he sees him. He hears a voice above the vault. Because God is not sitting still and silent for the prophet's inspection or for ours. God is speaking and ruling and commanding. And Ezekiel sees this glittering throne of lapis lazuli and then a human-like figure towering above the throne, a figure like a man. The glare of what Ezekiel sees is blinding. It's just burning white. But he can make out through his fingers, shielding his eyes, that from his waist up, this human-like figure looks like glowing metal. And from his waist down, he's just burning like fire, and he's surrounded by brilliant, bright white. The vision of God is overwhelming. It's a total sensory overload that 
nearly blows all of Ezekiel's circuits. All of his human receptors are just too small to take in who this God is. Because our weak human eyes are not calibrated to behold the glory of God. And all of this, Ezekiel notes, very carefully, was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Notice there's this triple qualification, this triple removal from God himself. He's not saying, I saw the Lord. He's not saying, I saw the glory of the Lord. He's not even saying, I saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He can only say, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel is grasping and he's groping for language to somehow describe his experience from God. And Ezekiel knows that his words are only the crudest approximation of who God really is, like all human language about God. And yes, with the Westminster Larger Catechism, we confess that God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Yet, the essence of God is ultimately unknowable by human beings and beyond definition. God is revealed to us, not so we could define him and manage him and control him and feel like, ah, I have a handle on God. I can now move on to other things. God shows himself to us so that we can respond to him in worship, adoration, and praise. This vision in the first chapter of Ezekiel is a terrifying vision. But it's not without hope. Ezekiel is unsure just what he saw in his glimpse of God through the brilliant light. It seems like Yahweh was human. But how could this be? What a shocking and confusing and disturbing thing for a Jew to get a glimpse of God and see a figure like a man in the center of the fire and the light. We wouldn't believe it either, except that we stand on this side of the incarnation. And surely what Ezekiel saw, but did not know he saw, was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who for the sake of us sinful, rebellious, alienated people, became one of us. Not just like a man, he became man in every respect, sin only accepted. And as the God-man, Jesus makes the presence of God bearable to human eyes. If you have seen me, he tells the disciple Philip, you have seen the Father. When we look into the face of Jesus, we are looking into the face of God. God's presence must be mediated somehow 
if human beings who were made to know God and look at him will not be destroyed. The wheels have touched the earth. God has not confined himself to the heavenly regions. He has come down. Not just briefly touching down, Jesus has descended to the lowermost regions of the earth, to the place of the dead. Emmanuel, God is with us in a far more profound way than was even revealed to Ezekiel. And notice how Ezekiel sums up his vision. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This whole account is thick with symbolism. And if you know your Old Testament at all, you know the story of the rainbow. The sign that God gave to Noah after the flood, the sign of God's covenant with his creation that he would never more destroy creation by water. And the rainbow is a sign of God's mercy and faithfulness and commitment to his creation, even in the midst of his judgment against sin. And this revelation of God's terrifying glory comes to Ezekiel like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds. And before this sovereign, majestic, everywhere present, all-seeing God of burning glory, Ezekiel can only fall on his face before his creator. The Kabar Canal is forgotten now because Ezekiel is crushed under the weight of God's presence. And that raises a question for us today, 2,500 years later. What matters more to you? What looms larger in your mind? Your immediate circumstances, distressing as they are, or the glory of God? Moses' one request of God was show me your glory. Hide me in the rock and show me your glory. And if we have been touched at all by the spirit of God, our supreme desire is that we too would behold the beauty of the Lord. God's promise to us in the gospel is that we would see with unveiled faces the glory of God. Not the way Ezekiel saw face to face. Because we've been brought near by Christ. We have been brought near in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that vision of the glory of God that Jesus brings us, we are overcome not with terror, but with joy. Brothers and sisters, how can we be casual in the presence of God? How can we be blasé or flippant? Before this all-consuming Lord, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the spirit that God has given us cries within our hearts, Abba, Father. And when God reveals himself to us, we do fall on our faces in worship. And then we experience God's hand on us, raising us to our feet, saying, look me in the eyes. The fire of God's holiness is the fire of divine love. 
a fire that burns forever but does not consume us. We have been called to be the temple of the living God. Living stones in God's dwelling place. Summoned to be a people for God's presence. We have many anxieties. We have many stresses. We have many worries. But God invites us to recalibrate ourselves, to open our eyes by faith, to open our hearts in love, and by the Holy Spirit, behold the face of God, the only thing that can satisfy these restless hearts. So shall we open our hands and our hearts and pray to God to show himself to us? Heavenly Father, we delight that you are a God of revelation. And what we need most of all for you to reveal is you yourself, O Lord. You have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. O Lord, we hunger and we thirst for you. In part, and yet we confess there is much of us that is cloyed and satisfied by the things of this world. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us afresh in the blood of Christ. Renew us afresh by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lift up our eyes. That we too in the gospel might behold visions of God. A God who is exalted and lifted up. A God who reigns supreme in majesty, glory, dominion. Whose presence fills all things. Who sees and knows all. We want to experience this God in holy fear and in holy love. Oh Lord, only you can reveal yourself to us. And we are coming to you in the name of Jesus, who is one of us and yet mysteriously also our divine king. Show yourself to us, O oh Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.